This is not according to the law, which gives no space for repentance, but it is a pure matter of grace. God saves you not because of any merit in your turning, but because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he had decreed to save all who turn from the paths of evil. Note next, that if there be no repentance, men must be punished, for on any other theory there is an end of moral government. The worst thing that could happen to a world of men would be for God to say, I retract my law. I will neither reward virtue nor punish iniquity. Do as you like. Then the earth would be a hell indeed. The greatest enemy to civil government among men is the man who preaches universal salvation. Salvation apart from a change of heart and life. Such teachers are a danger to national order. They remove the foundation of the commonwealth. They practically say, do just as you like. It may make a slight difference to you for a little while, but it will soon be over, and villains and saints will share an equal heaven. Such talk is damnable. I can say no less. If there is to be a government at all, it is necessary that sin should not go unpunished. Leniency to the dishonest is cruelty to those whom they injure. To save the murderer is to kill the innocent. It were an evil day for heaven and earth if it could once be proven that God would reward the depraved in the same way as the sanctified. Then would the foundation be removed, and what would the righteous do? A God who was not just would be a poor ruler of the universe. Yes, my hearers, sin must be punished. You must turn from it or die, because sin is its own punishment. When we talk to you of the fire that never can be quenched, and the worm that dieth not, we are supposed to mean those literal things. But indeed, these are figures, figures representing something more terrible than themselves. The fire is the burning of a furious rebellion in the soul, and the worm is the torture of a never-dying conscience. Sin is hell. Within the bowels of disobedience there lieth a world of misery. God has so constituted us, and rightly so, that we cannot long be evil and happy. We must, if we go wrong, ultimately become wretched. And the more wrong we are, and the longer we continue in that wrong, the more assuredly are we heaping up sorrow for ourselves throughout eternity. Holiness and right produce happiness, but iniquity and wrong must, by necessity of nature, which never can be changed, produce tribulation and anguish. It must be so. Even the omnipotence of God cannot make an impenitent sinner happy. You must turn from sin or turn to misery. You must either renounce your sins or else renounce all hope of a blissful eternity. You cannot be married to Christ in heaven until you are divorced from sin and self. I believe that every man's conscience bears witness to this, if it be at all honest. There are consciences of a very curious kind about at this time, abortions and not true consciences at all. I find men deliberately acting upon crooked policy, and yet they talk of truth and holiness. Yet every conscience that is not drunken with the mixed wine of pride and unbelief will tell a man 
that when he does evil, he cannot expect to be approved, that if he neglects to do good, he cannot expect to have the same reward as if he had done the good, that, in fact, there must be, in the nature of things, a penalty attached to crime. Conscience says so much as that, and now God himself, who taketh no pleasure in the death of the wicked, puts it to you. You must repent or perish. If you go on in your evil ways, you must be lost. There must be a turning from sin, or the Most High God can never look upon you with favor. Do you hear this? Oh, that you would let it sink into your heart and work repentance in you. 3. This leads me on to the third point, which is a joyous one. God finds pleasure in men's turning from sin. Read the passage again. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Among the highest of the divine joys is the pleasure of seeing a sinner turn from evil. God delights in those first thoughts which men have towards himself, in being careless hitheretofore, they on a sudden begin to reflect upon their ways and consider their condition before God. He looks with pleasure upon you who have aforetime been wild and thoughtless, who at last meditate upon eternity and weigh the future of sin and judgment. When you listen to that inviting word, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. God is pleased to observe your attention. When you begin to feel, I am sorry for my sin, oh, that I had never committed it, he hears your sigh. When your heart is sick of sin, when you loathe an evil and feel that though you cannot get away from it, yet you would if you could, then he looks down on you with pitying eye. When there is a new will springing up in your heart by his good grace, a will to obey and believe, then also the Father smiles. When he hears within you a moaning and a sighing after the Father's house and the Father's bosom, you cannot see him, but he is behind the wall listening to you. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Mark that last character. The man has only a little hope, but the Lord taketh pleasure in him. When yet the good work is only in the twilight, God is pleased with it, as a watchman is pleased with the first beams of morning light. Yes, he is more glad than they that watch for the morning. When at last you come to prayer and begin to cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God is well pleased, for here he sees clear signs that you are coming to yourself and to him. His spirit saith, Behold, he prayeth, and he takes this as a token for good. When you unfriendly forsake sin, God sees you do it, and he is so glad that his holy angels spy out his joy. I am sure that God watches the struggles of those who endeavor to escape from old habits and evil ways. When you try to conquer vile thoughts, when at the end of the day you sit down and cry over the day's failures because you did not get as well through the day as you hoped to do, 
the Lord observes your desires and your limitations. Just as a mother tenderly watches her child when it begins to walk and smiles as she sees it toddling from chair to chair and puts out her finger to help it, so doth God take pleasure in your early attempts after holiness, your longings to overcome sin, your sighings and cryings to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. God saith, I taught Ephraim to go, taking them by their arms, and in the same way he is teaching you. I will tell you what pleases him most of all, and that is when you come to his dear son and say, Lord, something tells me that there is no hope for me, but I do not believe that voice. I read in thy word that thou wilt cast out none that come unto thee, and lo, I come. I am the biggest sinner that ever did come, but Lord, I believe thy promise. I am as unworthy as the devil himself, but Lord, thou dost not ask for worthiness, but only for childlike confidence. Cast me not away, I rest in thee. Without faith it is impossible to please God, but it gives God a divine pleasure to see the first grain of mustard seed of faith in a poor, turning sinner's heart. Oh, I wish you would think of this, you that keep on condemning yourselves. When you write me those letters full of self-condemnation, you please me. And if you please me, I am sure you much more please God, who is so much more tender than ever I can be, though I would fain try and humbly imitate Him. How I wish I could bring you to trust my Lord this morning and end these cruel doubts and fears. Artful doubts and reasonings be nailed with Jesus to the tree. God's great convincing argument is his dying, bleeding son. O ye chief of sinners, turn to him, and God will have pleasure in your turning. Do you not know that all these thoughts towards him are breathed into you by his Spirit? All those regrets for sin, those desires after holiness, and especially those trustings in Christ, those hopings in his mercy, are all his work. They would never have been found in you, in your soul, if the Spirit had not put them there. If I saw a fair flower growing on a dunghill, I would conclude that the gardener had been there some day or other and had cast seed upon the heap. And when I see your soul commencing to pray and hope and trust, I say to myself, God is there. The Holy Spirit has been at work there, or else there would not have been even that feeble trusting in that faint hoping. Wherefore, be of good courage. You are drawing near to a gracious God. During the rest of your life, when you go on fighting with sin, and when you consecrate yourself to Jesus, when you wash your Savior's feet with your tears, and wipe them with the hairs of your head with the Magdalene, or when you break your alabaster box of myrrh and pour it on the Master's head with Mary, the Lord hath great pleasure in you for Jesus' sake. He taketh no pleasure in the groans and cries of hell, but in the repentance of sinner he hath joy. The fires of Gehenna give him no delight, but penitents smiting on their breasts and believers beholding Christ with tearful eyes are a royal spectacle to him. 
It must be so. He swears it, and it must be true. Cease your quibbling, and believe unto eternal life. 4. Lastly, since he hath pleasure in men turning to him, God therefore exhorts to it, and adds an argument. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? He perceives his poor creature standing with his back to him, looking to idols, looking to sinful pleasures, looking towards the city of destruction. And what does God say to him? He says, Turn. It is a very plain direction, is it not? Turn. Or, right about face. That is all. I thought, saith one, I was to feel so much anguish and so much agony. I should not wonder if you do feel it, but all that God says is turn. Now, you face the wrong way. Turn and face the right way. That turning is true repentance. A changed life is of the essence of repentance, and that must spring from a changed heart, from a changed desire, from a changed will. God saith, Turn ye, O that you would hear and pray. Notice how he puts it in the present tense. Turn ye, turn ye. Not tomorrow, all who are saved are saved today. Now is the accepted time. Turn ye. O by the infinite mercy of God, who will enable you to turn, I do pray you to turn from every evil, from every self-confidence unto God. No turning but turning to God is worth having. If the Lord turn you, you will turn to himself and to confidence alone in him and to his service and his fear. Turn ye, turn ye. See, the Lord puts it twice. He must mean your good by these repeated directions. Suppose my manservant was crossing yonder river and I saw that he would soon be out of his depth and so in great danger. Suppose I cried out to him, Stop! Stop! If you go another inch, you will be drowned. Turn back! Turn back! Will anybody dare to say, Mr. Spurgeon would feel pleasure if that man was drowned? It would be a cruel cut. What a liar the man must be who would hint such a thing when I am urging my servant to turn and save his life. Would God plead with us to escape unless he honestly desired that we should escape? I think not. Every sinner may be sure that God takes no pleasure in his death when he pleads with him in these unrivaled words, Turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? There is what the old divines used to call a repetition, an inward groaning, a reduplication of pleading in these words, Turn ye, turn ye. He pleads each time with more emphasis. Will you not hear? Then he finishes up with asking men to find a reason why they should die. There ought to be some weighty reason to induce a man to die. Why will you die? This is an unanswerable question in reference to death eternal. Is there anything to be desired in eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power? Can there be any gain in losing your own soul? Can there be any profit in going away into everlasting punishment? Can there possibly be anything to be wished for and desired in being cast into hell 
where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched? O souls, be not unreasonable. Do not neglect this great salvation. It must be the most awful thing in all the world to die in your sins. Why do you choose it? Do you desire shipwreck? Why hug the rocky shore and tempt destruction? Will you eat the poison dainties of sin because they are sugared with a little present pleasure? In the end, the gall of bitterness will fill your bowels. I am no flatterer. I dare not be, for I love you and would persuade you to turn unto the Lord. There is a flower which always turns to the sun. Oh, that you would in the same manner turn to God. Why turn away from Him? Why is a little word, but how much it takes to answer its demands? Why do you continue in sin? Why do you refuse to believe your Savior? Why would you provoke God? Why will you die? Turn round and say, O God, I cannot bear to perish everlastingly, and therefore I cannot endure to live in sin. May thy rich grace help me. O that you would trust in the Lord Jesus. Repose in him and in his finished work, and all is well. Did I hear you say I will pray about it? Better trust at once. Pray as much as you like after you have trusted, but what is the good of unbelieving prayers? I will talk with a godly man after the service. I charge you first, trust in Jesus. Go home alone, trusting in Jesus. I should like to go into the inquiry room. I dare say you would, but we are not willing to pander to popular superstition. We fear that in those rooms men are warmed into a fictitious confidence. Very few of the supposed converts of inquiry rooms turn out well. Go to your God at once, even where you are now. Cast yourself on Christ, now at once, ere you stir an inch. In God's name I charge you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Chapter 5, page 40 Chastened Happiness They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Jeremiah 33, verse 9 God's ancient people sadly provoked him with the idolatries from age to age, he was long-suffering to them to the last degree, but at length he grew weary of them, and according to his own words, he abhorred his own inheritance. He caused them to be carried away into captivity, and their land became a desert, or the heritage of strangers. Israel became a people scattered and peeled, and on the brink of national extinction, for their iniquities had hidden the face of the Lord from them. Yet the Lord, even Jehovah, had entered into a covenant concerning them with Abraham his friend, which covenant he had afterwards renewed with his servant David. This latter covenant the Lord is said by the prophet Jeremiah to remember even when Jerusalem is desolate. We read in the twentieth verse and onward these words, Thus saith the Lord, 
if ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, in that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. Even in Israel's worst day, when her representative man was the weeping prophet Jeremiah, and when her sorrows were greater than ever he could express, yet the Lord revealed his love and promised that blessed days should dawn for the seed of Abraham. These days have not yet come, but they shall surely arrive, for God hath not cast away his people whom he did foreknow. There is yet a history for Israel. Her sun is clouded, but it has not set. As surely as stands the covenant with day and night, so surely shall the chosen people return from their captivity and possess the land which the Lord has given unto them. In those days the Lord will build them as at the first and cleanse them from all their iniquities. Then they shall not be proud or arrogant, for his goodness shall startle and astound them, and they shall be amazed even unto trembling when they see what great things Jehovah has done for them. The memory of their great national offenses, and especially of their long rejection of the Messiah, shall cause them to wear their high dignity without pride. They shall be subdued by love to a childlike fear of again offending. They shall tremble as they see the Lord God of their fathers glorifying all his grace in them. Thus much for the strict connection of the text. At this time we shall loosen the verse from its stall and bring it forth to our own pastures. Its primary signification is not its only teaching. For the words of the Lord are full of eyes and look in many ways. We may use this promise in reference to all the Lord's people, for the promise is sure to all the seed. That which is true of the Jews, one way is true of all the chosen seed in the same sense or in another. No privilege of the covenant is absolutely private either to Jew or Gentile, but in its highest form, if not in its lowest, it is the common property of all the heirs of salvation. We are joint heirs with Christ Jesus, and as he inherits all blessing, so also do we. Paul in his epistle to the Galatians has well said, If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Let me then read the text again, and let us appropriate it to ourselves. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Such honor and blessing have all the saints. Our text suggests at the outset the remark that all the good things which make up prosperity are to be traced unto the Lord. Woe unto us if we receive good and perfect gifts and yet forget the Father of lights from whom they come. These benefits are not from beneath, but from above. Let them not be passed by in ungrateful silence, but let us send upward humble and warm acknowledgments. He who forgets mercy deserves that mercy should forget him. 
God grant we may never be such practical atheists as to receive daily bounties from God and not return a daily song. As each gleaming wave of the sea reflects the light of the sun, so let each ripple of our life flash with gratitude for the benediction of heaven. All good comes from the altogether good, who is of good the essence, the creator, and the giver. Especially is this true of all spiritual blessings, of such goodness as comes not so much from the benevolence to creatures as from mercy to sinners. As a being, I am grateful that my Creator is kind to me, but as a sinner, if my judge smiles upon me, I admire his exceeding grace. His justice had left me unblessed to perish through my sins if his mercy had not found a way to spare and to cleanse. You who know not only your insignificance, but also your unworthiness, are held under special bonds to lift up your hearts in fervent gratitude to the Lord. Remark next that temporal mercies are always best when they come in their proper order. I have no doubt our text includes both temporal and spiritual good, but certainly the temporals are arranged in the second rank. For the eighth verse runs, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And after this, we have mention of goodness and prosperity. After pardon, peace, and plenty are golden blessings. Without it, they might prove a curse. To an unforgiven sinner, the richest enjoyments of this life are as the food which fattens the bullock for the slaughter. And when sin is pardoned, common mercies become tokens of a father's love and ripen beneath the sun of divine love into an inexpressible sweetness. The children of God bless God for bread and water because God has made these things matters of promise and they come as covenant provisions. Cheered by grace, the child of poverty finds contentment in that which else might seem but prison fare. Much or little must depend upon the way in which you look upon it and what to the believer is enough might be to the worldling a mere pittance because grace has not trained his mind to rejoice in the will of the Lord. Blessed be God if he has given to us first the fruits of the Son of Grace and then the fruits put forth by the moon of providence. The main thing is to be able to sing, Bless the Lord who forgiveth all thine iniquities who heareth all thy diseases. And after that, it is most pleasant to add, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things. What shall I say of the happiness of those persons who have spiritual and temporal blessings united, to whom God has given both the upper and the nether springs, so that they possess all things needful for this life in fair proportion? and then, far above all, enjoy the blessings of the life to come. Such are first blessed in their spirits, and then blessed in their basket, and in their store.
In their case, double favor calls for double praise, double service, double delight in God. Let them take for their example the psalmist in the 71st Psalm, who first finds himself increased in greatness and comforted on every side, and then exclaimed, I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God. Unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. And yet, and yet, if we are very happy today, and though that happiness be lawful and proper, because it arises both out of spiritual and temporal things in due order, yet in all human happiness there lurks a danger. There is a wealth which hath a sorrow necessarily connected with it, and I ween that even when God maketh rich and addeth no sorrow therewith, yet he makes provision against an ill which else would surely come. Let me remind you of that memorable passage. There the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams. The Lord is all that to his believing people. But then broad rivers and streams have a danger appertaining to them. For these are waterways by which the pirates of the sea approach a city and plunder it. And hence for Zion's protection it is added, Wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. Thus the Lord gives the benefit without the danger naturally attendant upon it. He gives peace but prevents carnal security, and he gives happiness but prevents the pride and presumption which are too apt to grow out of it. The text speaks of goodness and prosperity procured for us, and then tells us that all danger which might arise of it is averted by a gracious work upon the heart. The Lord sends a chastened joy. They shall fear and tremble. Instead of unduly exalting in their possessions and becoming high-minded and vainglorious, the Lord's people are kept lowly and self-distrustful, and thus their happiness brings glory to God, and the Lord's word is fulfilled. It shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. This then is our subject, the sanctifying and mellowing of our joy. We shall try to see the Lord's loving wisdom in this matter, that we may the more wisely love Him, and the more intelligently estimate His prudent conduct towards us. We shall first notice this toning down of our joy, and then in the second place we shall observe the feelings by which this chastened effect is produced. And thirdly, we shall look to the measure in which most of us can enter into this experience of a joy toned and tinted by fear and trembling. 1. Let us think a little about the toning down of our great joys. As I have said, we need grace in enjoying both temporal and spiritual prosperity, and therefore I shall speak upon them both. 
Even when we are filled with holy delight, it is hard to carry a full cup with a steady hand. When most lifted up with spiritual joy, we are not beyond gunshot of the enemy. We need the armor of God on the right hand as well as on the left. Even when we serve the Lord, it must be with fear, and in His glorious presence we must rejoice with trembling. In the cup of salvation there are drops of bitterness, and so must it be, for unmixed delight in this world would be dangerous. Unbroken prosperity in worldly things has proved perilous to many Christians. It is no theory, but a matter of sad fact, that many men, as they rise as to one world, sink as to another. I am even afraid that long-continued health of body is not always for the health of a man's soul, in that to be without care and trouble is not the readiest way to soul prosperity. When the sea is smooth, the ship makes poor sailing. Men are bird-lamed by their rest and ease, and have small care to fly heavenward. We are apt to lose our God among our goods. Is it not so? If the world's roses had no thorns, should we not think it paradise and forego all desire for the gardens above? If Israel and Egypt had dwelt luxuriously, would a cry for deliverance have ever gone up to heaven? And had Pharaoh been content to ease their burdens, would they ever have marched from Canaan? Alas, we are apt to chill in our desires for heaven when we get to a warm side of the hedge and hear the smooth side of the world's tongue. When the flowers of earth charm us, we cast our eyes downward and forget the stars of heaven. At least the danger lies that way. Wise men dare not ask for unmingled prosperity, for they are not sure they can bear it. When first we travel to the south and escape this land of fog, we delight without measure in the sunshine, and are anxious to bask in it throughout the live-long day. Do you wonder? Yet before long experience suggests a sunshade, for the stranger finds that his head cannot endure the full ray of the sun. In the same way, many a man has suffered a sunstroke in his mind, in heart, in character, by making money too fast and prospering too much. There is a danger of another kind in a spiritual experience, which is all smooth and pleasant. You all remember the fate of Moab, who had been at ease from his youth, and had become settled upon his lees. May it never be ours. Yet I have seen professors lose their balance, while filled with delight. I am not one of those who would speak evil of excitement in religion. Men get excited about politics. Why should they not be excited about eternal things? Still, there is a kind of delirious religion about which I would have men avoid. Its joys are not calm and quiet, but fanatical and noisy. Be ye sober. Do not give up the reins of your judgment and permit your feelings to run away with you. Some Christians have been so uniformly joyous that they have grown elated and self-conceited, even as Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. 
a few have even supposed themselves to be absolutely perfect while in the flesh, a mere supposition disproved by their own want of modesty. We have seen brethren carry their heads so high that they could hardly understand a poor believer who was wrestling against sin and in the strength of God overcoming his corruptions. They have become censorious and have condemned their brethren as if they had been appointed to be judges in Israel to set up whom they would and put down whom they choose. The poles of mind caused as much by sound bodily health as by spiritual joy has made men think uncharitably of sick and sorrowful saints who have been very dear to Jesus though very doubtful of themselves. Alas, a succession of excitements has, in some cases, bred self-sufficiency, and this has made men light-headed, and they have been carried away by diverse heresies. Ecclesiastical history will tell you that some who have boasted of their high spiritual delights have gone far in vain imaginings and have ended in the worst forms of immorality. It is an extraordinary fact that super-spirituality has often been found to dwell next door to sensuality, and men have turned the wine of holy love into the vinegar of lust. I need not go to ancient chronicles to prove this. A word to the wise suffices. Even spiritual joy needs a dash of salt, if not of wormwood, to be mingled with it. Holy delight needs to be coupled with sacred grief. Repentance must go with faith, patience with hope, humility with full assurance, and conscious self-emptiness with a sense of the all-sufficiency of Christ. I would remind you next that unmixed joy would be felicious because there is no such thing here below. If a man should become perfectly contented with the things of this world, it would be the result of a false view of things. This is an error against which we should pray, for this world cannot fill the soul, and if a man thinks he has filled his soul with it, he must be under a gross delusion. What is the best thing of earth but a bubble, tinted with rainbow hues, but unsubstantial as a dream. Every earthly joy hath within it the seeds of its own destruction. O man, if thou didst but know thyself much more thy God, thou wouldst be assured that visible things can never satisfy the desires of spiritual beings. As to spiritual joy, I say that in no man's experience can it be long without admixture, and yet be true? Never at any moment can a Christian be in such a position that he has not some cause either for dissatisfaction with himself, or fear of the tempter, or anxiety to be faithful in service. Our streams of joy blend with currents of fear. Blessed be God, my sin has forgiven me. This joy calls up a balancing thought. Oh, that the Spirit of God may help me not to sin again. Again I sing, Blessed be God, I have gotten the victory over an evil habit. But my song is followed by the prayer 
Lord, enable me to conquer all evils, even those which as yet I know not. Thus joy and fear hang like the two scales of a balance. I mean not the fear which love casts out, but the filial fear which love fosters. If God has preserved his servant in the day of battle, he has no room to boast, for here comes another enemy. Temptations come wave after wave, and having breasted one, we prepare for another. We cannot yet shout the victory, for lo, the foe advance squadron upon squadron. Their routed battalions are succeeded by new armies, and it behooves us to quit ourselves like men. We dwell where in our God we have the utmost reason for delight, but where in all things we perceive the most weighty arguments for solemnity. Rejoice evermore, but cease not to fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that the Lord has procured for you. Once more, unmixed delight on earth would be unnatural. We are not in heaven yet, and perfect bliss lives not beneath these cloudy skies, nor within the pale sway of the moon. While we are in this body, we groan, though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, for we are in a creation which groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Our years must have their winters while the world revolves. When the Dutch had the trade of the East in their hands, they were accustomed to sell birds of paradise to the untraveled people of these realms. These specimen birds had no feet, for they had craftily removed them, and the merchants declared that the species lived on the wing and never alighted. There was so much of truth in the fable that they had been really and veritably birds of paradise. They would not have found a place for their feet upon this globe. Truly, birds of paradise do come and go, and flit from heaven to earth, but we see them not, neither can we build tabernacles to detain them. While you are here, expect reminders of the fact that this is not your rest. If you could attain to perfect joy on earth, you might be justified in saying, I have no longing for heaven, I am perfectly clear of sin, in care, in trouble. I may as well stay here where I am. What need to go further if I can fare no better? Let no man dream that things will ever come to this with him. Ah, ye lovely flowers of spring, this year we have looked forth too soon. It is strangely mild weather for December, but spring has not arrived. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email 
at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5 You may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the reformation's regulative principle of worship or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship commenting on the words of God which I commanded them not neither came into my heart from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31 writes God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions since he condemns by this one phrase I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised there is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God for when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands they pervert true religion and if this principle was adopted by the papists all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground it is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards god by performing their own superstitions there is an immense number of them as it is well known and as it manifestly appears were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship god except by obeying his word they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error the prophet's words then are very important when he says that god had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required nay what he never knew